Well, good morning. Today we will finish last week's sermon from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. I don't want to get straight into it, so let's review this text together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. The Bible says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As I explained last time, one of the main applications here is to come to a deeper understanding of what God has done for us through saving us, so that he might be glorified and so that others might see what they have to gain in him. Last time we covered the first three steps, and today we will cover the last three, all coming straight out of our text, which is good because I have nothing worthy to share with you compared to what God has already given us in his word. So, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, how to get a testimony. Step one, remember who you are. And so, who are we? as followers of Jesus. Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We covered each of these last time, but let me remind you that even without drilling down, the point is that we are now a people. Those whom God has chosen for heavenly royalty, as well as eternal membership within a holy population. We are precious living stones in the hands of God being built into his kingdom as we learned in the previous passage. But this all stands in contrast to the previous verse where we learned that the alternative for each of us would have been an eternal destiny separated from God. Because that was verse 8. Verse 9 starts with, but you. And then we have all this about who we now are in Christ. Chosen, royal, holy. Probably none of us have begun to rejoice as much as we should have over being moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So, how does this relate to your testimony? Well, if you don't know who you are by grace through faith in Christ, then your story never moves past a depressing introduction. As I said last week, you don't have a testimony if nothing big happened, or more accurately, if you don't realize who you have become through Christ. To get a testimony, remember who you are. Secondly, to get a testimony, remember whose you are. Peter writes, but you are a people for his own possession. If you've placed your trust in Christ, you now belong to him. We talked a lot about how our human nature can react negatively to this, which only adds to the evidence that we desperately needed saving 
from ourselves. We are rebellious creatures who want no God besides the God of me. But the truth is that being owned by God is the reason for our existence. This is where purpose and fulfillment and contentment are found in belonging to our Creator. We all, like sheep, had gone astray. But the Good Shepherd wanted us back so much that He died for our redemption, which is a word that means He had to pay a second time for what should have already been His. Did you know that the God of all creation wants you? You, not just some group. He wants you. And that when He has you, He keeps you. The Bible even says that He will treasure you forever. As a saved person, you now belong to God. So how does this relate to our testimony? Better yet, how can this add power to your testimony? Well, have you been telling people that God doesn't want anything from them? Only believe. That's pretty weak, folks. Okay, we can start with belief, and yes, faith is the main thing, and John 3.16 is a great place to begin. But as you are talking about belief, you need to define it, especially in these modern times. Saving faith or belief that leads to salvation includes a complete and total surrender to Christ as Lord. Listen, after the transaction that we refer to as getting saved, your life is no longer your own, nor should it have ever been. Because you were created to be owned by God. Sin is what broke that whole thing up. And God wants to restore you to His own possession, just as this passage says. In fact, this is how He saves you from yourself. Folks, in my view, you don't really believe in the Christ who saves if you are not also in the process of surrendering to Him. You don't believe in the true Christ, the one who is also God. If you think that doesn't mean he gets to be your God. Or if you think he has no claim on your life at that point. No, as long as I still get to be my own boss, faith is not faith through which God saves. When God saves, he takes possession. And we need to get this into our testimonies. The Lord is our God and we are his people. I have a friend named Bevan. What? Maybe it's a different Bevan. <laughs> and many, anyway, this friend always speaks of salvation the same way. He always talks about people giving their lives to Christ. I'll be honest, for a little while I analyzed that phrase. And I thought, is that the best way to say it? But after chewing on it for a fraction of the time he's been alive, I can now tell you that I think it's a great way to say it. And this text right here helps inform that understanding. You need to surrender to be saved. You need to accept the claim Christ makes on your life when you are saved. You belong to him now. And you also need to understand how incredibly wonderful that is. Because who God owns, He keeps. And who God keeps, He cares for. If you want a better testimony, remember whose you are. 
Now, I added a little bit on that point today, but this is still review and also from last week. The third step to getting a testimony is this. Remember from whence you came. Peter says, you come from the darkness. You weren't just a little bit shady. You were pitch black. You weren't just wandering. You were completely lost. You were not sort of, a little bit, blinded. You had no eyeballs, okay? It doesn't matter if you were saved when you were six, like me, or saved in prison for the worst kind of crime. You came from the darkness. And until you understand that, you won't have much of a testimony. I spent a lot of time on this and shared some practical ways to communicate this truth, especially for those who maybe were saved as children or those who maybe were relatively moral before Christ. But for today, I'll simply remind you of the truth that you came from the darkness. And I encourage you never to tell your story in such a way as to communicate to people that really, you didn't really need all that much saving. Why? Because that is not the truth. You were dead in sin. You were headed for hell. You were lost in the dark. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. And now that was all review, and now I'm excited to move further into the text and cover the last three steps to get a testimony. Step four. Remember what you have received. From verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We covered the first part of this verse last time. So now look at this idea that we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. One of the things I often run into when someone wants to potentially be baptized is this myth so many believe that they have really just sort of always been saved. People will say, I've always been in church. Or if that's not the case, they'll say, I've always believed in God. Or if they're super attuned to what they think I want to hear, they'll say, maybe even, I've always believed in Jesus. What they're basically saying is that they've always assumed they've always been saved. But nothing could be further from the truth. Listen, salvation happens at a particular moment in your life or it never happened for you, period. Folks, for every last person, there is a before mercy, and there is an after mercy for those who are saved. You had not received mercy, says Peter, but now you have received mercy. Think about the timeline of your life, and understand that there's a before mercy, and there's an after mercy on that timeline if you're saved. This idea that salvation happens at one particular point in time is not vague in Scripture. When were you saved? If you don't have an answer to that, you might want to get one. Now, is it possible that you might not remember the moment of your salvation all that well. Yes, that is possible, especially if you were young. But for me, I would want to make extra sure I'm saved if I didn't remember at all. I can tell you that. Let me share a terrible but important story. In my first church plan, I had a member who seemed strong. He knew his Bible well. 
He led ministries in our church, eventually becoming an elder after I had left. This man was always telling us that he had been saved so young that he didn't remember it, but that he knew he was saved. But long after I left that church, the same man wound up in adultery, dropped his family completely, abandoned his faith. Sadly, he had to be removed from the church a biblical necessity since his sin was open and his heart unrepentant. Now, that's not one of my favorite stories. But if the Bible says that time and fruit will show who is actually saved. Right now, my point is that I am not super keen on any testimony where you can't talk about the moment of your salvation. I'm sure there are exceptions. But my biggest concern is for anyone in this room who just sort of thinks they were probably saved at some point. Do you want to really rest on that? Eternity is in the balance. There must come a point when you receive mercy from God. Because prior to that point, you have most definitely not received God's mercy. And I'm not talking about temporary mercy, folks. Some little religious moment. I'm talking about something Jesus referred to as being born again. Like night and day. Like dark to light. Has that ever happened for you? How do you cross this marker on your own personal timeline? You need to surrender to Jesus Christ and respond to His salvation invitation. You need to put your trust fully and totally in Jesus to save you from sin. And remember what I said earlier. This means you're giving your life to Christ. Have you really ever done that? Are you absolutely sure? If not, let today be the day when you move from before mercy to after mercy. And let us know because this is the kind of thing a church is supposed to get to celebrate. Your birthday in Christ. Now, before I move on to the next point, let me talk a little bit about mercy. And I don't think a word study really helps a whole lot here. I've heard people try to define the difference between mercy and grace, for example. And uh, I think that goes like a lot of other things people say about words, mostly nonsense. These words, mercy and grace, are basically interchangeable in Scripture. The context is what matters. And the context here is 100% salvation. And so this mercy we're reading about can also be thought of as saving grace. This is about moving from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So that what? So that we may proclaim His excellencies. So that the world may see and perhaps also believe. This is about being saved and it's about telling others the story of your salvation. This is the kind of mercy we're talking about. The kind that is the antithesis of wrath. And there we are. Wrath is the alternative. You want a testimony? Understand that this phrase, you had not received mercy, means that you were under the wrath of God. Before you received mercy. I wonder how many who have been sitting in church services for years have missed this message entirely. Why? Because it has not been preached. 
particularly in our modern times. So please hear me preach it. We are all under God's wrath until we receive His mercy. And see, folks, both sides of that equation give your testimony power. It's not only that you have received mercy, but it is what you had before that, which is the promise of an eternal hell. Why have so many preachers stopped preaching this? I can assure you, hell and wrath used to be preached. I remember when I was a kid. Maybe you think people stopped preaching this because they wanted a larger crowd. I suppose some preachers are that shallow, yes. But I don't think that's mostly what happened. What mostly happens is that just like you, preachers can't stand to think about it, so we stop preaching it. This is also why we don't share Christ with folks as we should, because we can't stand to think about where they're going. I can admit to you today that I tend to try to forget about the eternal destination of so many other people. The entire subject puts me into a sort of depression if I'm not careful. It breaks my heart into pieces. The idea that billions of people, I guess, based on their testimony, on a lack of profession of faith in Christ, billions of people are headed to hell. I cannot stand it. The gravity of it brutalizes my mind, but that doesn't make it untrue. My pain over the idea cannot pretend away the fact. See, I don't get to determine truth. I just have to obey Christ in preaching it, and so do you. Or did you think actually following Jesus is only for clergy? Did you think we're the only ones with the message? No, if you want to obey the Lord and share your testimony, overcoming the power of this world, Revelation 12, 11, and serving within God's kingdom as a living stone from the verse before, then yes, you need to include the wrath of God in your testimony because you, my friend, were under wrath until you received mercy. And so... How could you not say as much to someone who's still sitting there under wrath? Not telling them is like looking away as a Mack truck comes racing toward your friend standing on the street. That is not love. Love is warning people. Love is telling sinners how to find mercy. Oh, it's hard. (laughs) Man, is it ever hard. It's very hard for me. But we've got to do this. I need to tell people where I'd be headed if not for Christ. And maybe that helps a little bit. If you heard me just now, did you see how I turned from them to me? Listen, maybe you don't have to point out where they are going. If you look at this passage about your testimony... Maybe it's better to just tell them where you were going. 
until Christ saved you. That's a good place to start, at least, right? Tell them at one point you were under wrath, not mercy, right up until you were saved. And don't leave that out when you share your salvation story. If you want to get a powerful testimony, you'll need to remember what you've received, the mercy of God. Step number five, remember where you are going. Peter continues, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That first word is one of my favorite words in the Bible, beloved. What a wonderful word. And it's important to understand that Peter isn't referring to his own love for them quite so much as he is defining them as the people God loves. This is a term of endearment used to address the church throughout the New Testament. The biblical writers have sort of borrowed terms from each other in the Spirit, and several of them have started to use this term to refer to the church. More often, what we now call the church is referred to as the beloved in the New Testament, and it simply means those who are loved by God with a very special, very exclusive kind of love. And there's that word again, exclusive. We don't need to find a way to fit in with this world's latest preferred terminology. We need to double down on what the Bible teaches about Christ's church, which is that it is indeed exclusive. Now, I'll say once more that the invitation is inclusive. Yes. We are to go out to the highways and byways or to the gutters or anywhere and everywhere to invite anyone and everyone to come in. But the family we are, in fact, inviting them to join excludes any who are not willing to surrender to Christ. Anyone can come and see. Anyone can come and hear. But the church is not defined as anyone and everyone doing and being anything and everything anybody wants to be or do. Who are the beloved? We are a spiritual family of forgiven sinners being made saints. And guess what? Not, not everyone joins, joins up. Not everybody joins the fam. Indeed, as Jesus put it, the gate is narrow. And by the way, he is the gate. When it comes to our testimony as people who have been brought through the gate into the church, we need to understand what it means that we have now become the beloved of God. This means that we have received mercy. This means that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. This means that we have been moved from the kingdom of darkness, which, where most people live, where we used to be, into the kingdom of light, where a few people live. There are a few who find it. That's what the Bible says. And we have been placed there by God because of His love. Being the beloved means that we are now part of a relatively small group of people who are loved by God in a very special way. That is, as His very own family. Those who have received mercy and are the beloved family of God. This is precisely what is meant by the word church. 
And so to the church, the beloved, Peter says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Before we go on to the following directive, we'll stay right here on our identity for a bit longer because from these two descriptors, we get something different than we got from chosen race, royal priesthood, or holy nation. Those terms refer to our being the people of God. But these other two terms refer to our relationship back to this world wherein we have been left behind for a time. That is, until Christ comes to get us. The meaning behind these words, sojourners and exiles, seems fairly obvious. We do not belong here. This world is not our home. Our time is short on this cursed earth. You get the idea. The sojourn is basically to visit for an extended period of time. But there are connotations to just visiting, right? This means we actually have some visiting to do. That there's a reason we are here for now, even though we're passing through, just visiting. All of this, obviously, <laughs> makes me think of Monopoly. Does anybody stay in jail all three turns when you're playing Monopoly? That probably depends on whether you follow the rule that one cannot receive rent while in jail. Since that is our house rule, everyone always pays the 50 bucks and gets out immediately. Besides, who can sit there when a simple roll of 10 on the dice means cashing in on free parking, right? You get, you get cash on free parking at our house, and it's usually a pretty good payout. Regardless, nobody just sits there in jail when you can get out. That's madness. But what about when you are just rolling along and you, you land on, what's it called? Just visiting, you know, beside the jail. Just visiting. Well, now you understand something about sojourning. It's kind of boring, really. It's almost like nothing important is happening in that space. Other people may even be wiping out or cashing in, but you're just visiting. In fact, at least by our rules, just visiting is the only space on the entire board where absolutely nothing happens. The only one. From now on, think of just visiting as sojourning. See, folks, this life is temporary and kind of boring compared to the next. What are we so stressed out about? This thing is a passing vapor, the Bible says. It's a passing vapor. You'd really rather move on. If you're headed home to be with Jesus. But you've got to spend one turn, one life, just visiting. Now, you might think, surely I've exhausted this terribly stretched illustration, but no. I'm not even done. In Monopoly, when you land on just visiting, what are you just visiting? Jail. Okay, so there you go. This world is like a prison for us in many ways. The earth is cursed. It's dying. Temporary. Like a shadow. The end of this shadow is near. And thankfully, we're just visiting Stay with me for a minute and recognize 
There's a reason I'm saying these things. Because there's a very different message out there today. Even in the church. And folks, this message is finding its way into so many Christian books and Bible studies and sermons and all the rest. The idea is that this world is actually mostly good and wonderful. That you should get all you can out of it and sort of make it your mission to get the world back to the way God always wanted it to be. I recently read that God isn't going to so much destroy this world as he is going to fix it. That's heresy, actually. Sounds nice, but not true. The Bible says this world is going to literally melt away from intense heat when God burns it down to the elements. Not my words, but in fact, Peter's words from his second letter. Chapter 3, verse 10. And of course, there are plenty of other passages telling us that Jesus will utterly destroy this world when he's ready. Listen, when the Lord Jesus Christ makes all things new, step one is demolition. <laughs> but that's what the Bible teaches. The Word of God does not teach that we should try to salvage everything until Jesus changes enough hearts to solve our so-called carbon problem or whatever. The Bible has us working with God to save souls, not the planet. I know I'm making enemies right now. I'm aware. People hate every shred of God's truth, generally, but that doesn't make it any less true. This earth will never be heaven. And listen, this earth is never going to be our home. It's a prison. Cursed, dying, groaning, waiting to be destroyed. That's the truth. Be glad you're just visiting, fellow sojourner. Is that the way you've been operating? Is that the way you've been thinking? I guarantee you when it comes, you'll be glad this earth is not your home. And of course, now I have to do the required disclaimer, lest I be misunderstood. I am not saying we shouldn't care for this earth until Jesus returns, or that there isn't a place for reasonable environmentalism and conservation among Christians, and I absolutely hate things like litter and unnecessary pollution. I'm not a big fan of plastic. I care about things, but look. The job of Christians is not mostly to save this planet because this planet is absolutely not going to be saved. We are just visiting. We are sojourners. One last thought, when you visit a jail, are you really visiting the jail? No, of course not. You're visiting the people in the jail. And that's why we are here, for the people. Scripture says, God is not willing for any to perish, but desires that all would come to repentance. In another place, we're called the ambassadors of Christ, which also means we're not from here, but that we do have a mission during our sojourn, and that mission is about people. Next, Peter calls us exiles. What does that mean? Well, it means we don't really want to be here, for starters. 
When the Jews were exiled, it meant they were forcibly removed from their homes and their homeland. And the Bible says they hung their harps on the willows, meaning they stopped playing music and they mourned instead. They hated Babylon, folks. And those who started loving it were the ones who never got to go back home. The Bible is so clear that the beloved, the church, believers, are not to love this world. Nor are we to love the things in the world. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. We live here as exiles. Now, at one point, God did also correct the Israelites a little by saying, Hey, I still got a job for you to do. Even there in Babylon where you're exiled, like in Jeremiah 29, where it becomes clear that they should seek the welfare of the place where they are exiled and pray to the Lord on the behalf of the people there. And so once again, don't take me too far on this, but most of us in this room probably need to love this world less, not more. By the way, in the Bible, the world can mean either the people in the world like John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's about the people in the world. Or it can mean this cursed earth, the worldliness that reigns here, like John that I mentioned, John 2, 15 through 17, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world. Two different ways of using those terms in the Bible. It's good to know that. But we need to understand that we're exiles in this worldly world. Exiles. We could just, that could be the sermon. You're in exile and just grapple with that for a while and see if that's how you've been living and how you've been thinking. We do not belong here. But how does this all relate to getting a better testimony? Well, let me begin to answer that question by making something else clear. A better testimony is not necessarily one that is easier on the ears of those who would hear it. Okay, we need to get this. It's not a better salvation story just because it connects or helps the latest wayward generation possibly come a little bit closer to Jesus before they finally reject Him anyway. This is very important to understand. Your testimony is not graded by God on how much people want to hear it. From God's perspective, your testimony is best when it's simply the truth. How many ways has the modern church erred by trying to connect to a worldview of lies? This is why some of my heroes have strayed, I believe. I won't name names, but they just wanted to build bridges. They wanted to try not to offend so quickly, to connect with people who are utterly deceived. I share those feelings. And so we keep doing the same thing over and over and writing more and more books about it. We say that we're not changing the message, only the methods. But in fact, let me tell you what I've seen over my last three decades as a pastor, which is that we wound up changing the message after all. Only recently have I fully realized what most of the church has done. And I've been part of it to some degree at certain points. I don't wonder how many ways I have erred over the years out of a good heart and good motives, of course. I just wanted to reach lost people. Fishers of men. That's what Jesus says we are. Okay, so which lure should we use? Problem, 
Fishermen in Jesus' time didn't use lures. They used nets. Fishermen threw these nets out, I guess fairly randomly, and they simply took in whatever was there, whatever God had brought to one side of their boat or another. So how do we catch men as Jesus through Peter said we would? Well, not by watering down the message to be easier on their ears. Not even by making our testimony more appealing or less offensive, but by simply throwing out the truth which they may well have never heard. Even if others tried to share the gospel with them. They never really heard the truth because so much of what Christians share these days is not the gospel. What happens when people hear the true gospel? Rewind a few verses. Many reject it. Oh, that's what we should expect? Yes, we were told ahead of time that many would trip over the stumbling block of Jesus, and as they reject Him, they will reject us. And so I guess our churches might get smaller. And that would mean somebody's got to do something. So we look at the churches that got bigger, and we learn what they did to connect so well with a lost world or something like that. Hey, I know, we should talk about our role in caring for the environment. And now God doesn't ever condemn people, they just sort of condemn themselves. Because He wouldn't do that. And let's leave out the wrath part and the hell part. And while we're at it, we should teach even the Christians that God wants us to be wealthy. And that God doesn't want them to have any sorrow in their life or that He always heals everyone with enough faith or a million other lies that cause us to really think that this world's the place where we want to stay for as many years as possible. Let me tell you something, church family. If you begin to see the world the way God wants you to see it and you see yourself strictly as a sojourner and an exile here, you will gain an attitude more like the Apostle Paul who said, you know, really, in some ways, I'd rather die. I'd rather go home to be with the Lord. But if He wants me to stay a while to reach a few more people with the gospel, so be it. What if the next time you shared your testimony, you were to speak as an exile, ready to die and go home at any moment? Well, at the very least, you'd raise a few eyebrows, right? I mean, they'd be like, I never heard anything like this before. Maybe they won't respond to the milk toast they've already heard. But what if the problem is that our message has been too easy and too untrue? Maybe even here in this crowd today, somebody's thinking, well, it kind of hurts, and I don't like it, but it rings true. That's because it is true. God wants to set you free with His truth. Satan and the voices of this world have been captivating you with lies since you were born. I'm here today as a sojourner in exile, and I'm on a mission to tell you to stop listening to the lies of this world and start listening to the truth of God. Have you ever begun your testimony with words like that? The point here is to remember where you are going, but I haven't actually spoken that part yet. It is implied if you're a sojourner here, 
in exile on this earth. That means you're here on assignment temporarily, just visiting. And so where is it that you are ultimately going? Heaven, right. Our eternal home is a new heaven and a new earth, paradise with God. This new heaven and earth is the place where all the pain and injustice and decay and evil and war and carbon emissions and whatever else that you're so concerned about will be put away from all of us completely. Listen, heaven is what we have to look forward to. And I don't really care if they want to call me an escapist. That's what they call us. They're just an escapist. I don't care. Because the actual truth is that the heaven Christ is preparing for us is the place where everything will be made right. Not here. Let me say that again. Not here. Again, I'm not saying we shouldn't work for God's justice while we're here. I'm not saying we can't make some wrongs right. Or that praying for God's kingdom to come only means what is coming at the very end. I'm not saying we shouldn't present our testimonies with gentleness and respect as we will uh, learn in chapter 3 of this same book. I'm not saying any of that, but hold on to this. We are not trying to make anything happen here that means we would want to stay. Can you hear that? We are on our way to a place that God is preparing we are not preparing a place that might eventually be good enough for God. And if you don't know that message is out there in the church, it is. And that's not the gospel. Remember where you are going. Last step to a powerful testimony, remember to keep the change. This is also the title of our series, if you recall, and what I mean by this phrase is basically summed up in the following verses, which also harken back to what I consider to be the thesis verse of the book, to be holy as God is holy. But now from verse 11, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The first thing I want you to notice here is that we are at war. Now, it's not as if you could lose your soul as one of the beloved, but it absolutely is true that your soul can be injured. Besides that, battles lost are very hard on the effectiveness of your testimony. Most of you heard of spiritual warfare, the classic text on that subject being found in Ephesians chapter 6, but without going far into it, simply be reminded that there is an unseen war going on and the health of your soul is at stake. Peter says your soul is the very thing being attacked. But who or what is attacking your soul? In this case, while I believe the tempter, Satan, is involved, the only attacker listed in our text is a little something called the passions of the flesh. Or as the NASB puts it, fleshly lusts. This is about evil desires human temptations and tendencies rooted in our old sinful selves, and these old dead parts of us are currently waging war against our living souls. Who or what is going to win? Is your flesh going to win or is your soul going to win? That's a big question. 
Now, all of this is outlined in our text as sort of a chain of events, and I'm going to try to communicate it to you through a simple little flow chart. So, take a look at the screen, and let me walk through this, and I really am taking this straight from the text. Hopefully, it's there. Yes. It starts with our fleshly desires. Okay, that's, that's what we start with. Those are there. What happens if your soul wins? You keep a good testimony. Somebody going to glorify God might even be saved. Your soul loses, it leads to a bad testimony. No glory for God. Maybe no salvation. That's just how I outlined these couple of verses. Now, ultimately, God saves people. So don't take this to the extreme, but somehow, apparently, your life choices, particularly in the areas of abstaining from fleshly desires, resulting in good conduct that people can see, can either tarnish or bolster your testimony in such a way that it actually enters into the equation of whether or not unbelievers might glorify God, that is to say, be saved when He visits. Now, I try not to spend a lot of time making my case for any particular interpretation of a passage, but for the record, many of your favorite commentators agree with how I am taking this. Uh, sometimes when I feel like maybe I'm out on a limb a little bit, I'll go check. Make sure there's somebody else also said this. Make sure I wasn't off base. And a lot of people are taking it this way. Any discussion of what this is supposed to mean is going to center on what Peter meant by the phrase, the day of visitation. If you're like me, when you first read this, you assumed the day of visitation must refer to the return of Christ. But I don't think the second coming was Peter's primary point. The context here is about how our testimony might be more effective or less effective among the Gentiles, that is unbelievers, and the time when that will matter most is on the day or days when God visits them to draw them to Himself, a moment when those same folks may well be helped or hindered by the testimonies of the Christians they know. When God visits a person with His empowering grace, will they be helped along by your testimony or not so much? That's what this is about. Now, there's one other term I need to define in, the, in this context, and some of you will probably check out for the next two paragraphs. I hope I can get you back afterwards. But I got to deal with this because I know we have some inquiring minds. You want the questions answered. So you might be confused that Peter's talking to churches full of Gentile converts, and yet he also says, see that your conduct among the Gentiles is honorable. Last week, I was super clear that the original audience of this letter consisted of Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ rather than Jews who had done so. And knowing this was very important in order to get the powerful idea that we, like them, also Gentiles, are now included among the people of God, a people of which we were not previously a part. And if you remember, I pointed to the phrase, you once were not a people, to help show that this is obviously not written to Jews. But then when you see this phrase, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, you may want to scratch your head because if these are Gentiles he's writing to in the first place, how does it make sense to tell them to think of the watching world as Gentiles? The answer is that there are times when a word, or, when a word is a label and there are times when a word is a description. In this place, Peter is using the term Gentiles to describe those who are still lost and apart from Christ. 
He's not using the term in the sense of that label which means everyone other than the Jews. In fact, at this point in history and in the church, the word Gentile is starting to be used to mean something else. Peter's referring to those who have not yet accepted Christ when he says, keep your behavior honorable among them. The Greek word is actually ethnos, and in this context, it basically means all the others, or as the NLT simply puts it, unbelievers. In this newer sense of the word, these folks had once been Gentiles, but they are no longer. And in the same sense, the same is true for us. To sum up, in the New Testament, Gentiles can mean non-Jews, or it can mean non-believers. And the context tells you which is the case. Now, back, that was, you know, just that was a little side window. Um, what do you call those in the book? There's a word for it. You know, you have a little block over there in the book that nobody ever reads. That was that. Back to the larger point. How do we keep the change? Sidebar? Is that it? There's something. I think there's another word too, though. There's another word. Anyway, how do we keep the change? How do we stay true to our newfound identity as the holy people of God? How do we make sure our testimony is not so tarnished as to potentially slow down or negatively impact somehow somebody else's potential conversion? How do we stay changed and keep changing? One word, abstain. Not a, I, it's not a positive word, is it? I mean, the command is right there in verse 11, and this is the verb, the action word, the way to win the battle against our souls, right? And the word is abstain. Maybe you're thinking, that's not really all that helpful, pastor. Well, don't I know it? We're in this thing together, you know? I mean, I have the same battles. If only God had given us 12 steps to abstaining, maybe we could do a better job of it. Instead, he just says, abstain. All right. We are commanded to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Were you aware? Maybe you haven't quite caught it yet. What are we commanded to abstain from? Fleshly lusts. See, we haven't even gotten to the idea of doing the deed. We are commanded to abstain from the desire itself. This is one of my memory verses, by the way, one of my sword blades, you might say. In fact, I like to think of the sword of the Spirit as a lightsaber, <laughs> which actually works on multiple levels, if you think about it. Light. Anyway, we only have one offensive weapon in spiritual warfare, and that is the Word of God. Everything else we have to fight with is protective, armor, shields, helmets, you know, boots, the rest. But our one weapon is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So when fleshly lust rises up and wages war against my soul, this is actually one of the verses that I quote to the enemy and to myself that I will abstain from fleshly lust which rises up against my soul. That is actually one of the verses I use. And as I do it, I always do this. I'm just kidding. I don't do that. 
But that's really what we do. We use the verses when it happens. There's a lot at stake here. It's a war. In some mysterious way, souls are at stake. Somehow our own souls are affected when we lose battles. No doubt. But as I've mentioned, there's an indication here that others are affected as well. Parents, your kids are watching. And your friends and neighbors, your testimony matters. But more than anything, it would seem that in some way the glory of God is at stake. And that's even heavier than all the rest. So what do we need to do? We need to abstain from fleshly lusts. Lusts or desires, wrong desires. Interestingly, the kind of sinful actions that wound our souls always start with desires. Always. Peter begins where all the bad stuff starts. Desires. Fleshly passions. My goodness, if we could ever learn to kill those in the first place, to abstain from entertaining the desire itself, we'd win so many more battles. You know how it is. Play around with that fleshly desire just a little bit, and you've already lost like a moth to a flame. I could do another mini message on how when we win these battles and keep the change, but I'll just close with a quick review of the previous points. When you remember who you are, remember whose you are, remember from whence you came, remember what you have received, and remember where you are going, you'll be helped along the way to keeping the change. People are watching, fellow believer, Will your testimony help them glorify God in the day of visitation? Hopefully, from God's Word, we've learned some practical steps to take in that direction. Maybe we should also pray. Anybody else think they need help with this? By the way, you think, do you think I always get the, all these things right? <laughs> Surely not. Have you think, like, how does a pastor balance, by the way? Setting an example, staying above reproach, you know, all that kind of stuff. And also not making you think that there's anybody that never makes mistakes. It's kind of tough, you know. So stop looking at me because you'd be disappointed, you know, you'd be disappointed. I'm not near as good as you think I am. Let's just be, let me just, let's just get right on. That should be like a country song, shouldn't it? Anyway. There's a war. You're not the only one. Your soul gets attacked. Anybody? Can testify? Anybody's soul being attacked? Man, you guys, are, you guys are holy, I guess. I don't know. Mm. No, you're just Northwesterners. Don't make me raise my hand or do anything for that matter. I'm just going to sit here and you talk. I get it. It's all right. Cultural. Uh, sometimes you get done with the sermon, you just don't feel done. I want to circle back. Before mercy, after mercy. Before being born again, being saved, after. Do you know where that is? 
You really need that for your testimony and you need that for the assurance of your salvation, I think. If there's anybody here that's not sure and you just want to nail it down today, I want to help guide you. Let's pray. God, for whoever that is today, sometimes we hang on. It's like, yeah, but, yeah, but I've always said that I, I'm, I'm a Christian. Yeah, but maybe I was baptized as a baby or as a 23-year-old. Or other things that we throw up there. Lord, it's too important. I pray for anyone here that's not sure that they're after mercy. That they're saved. That today would be the day. What does it take? Respond to God. Respond to the Holy Spirit. Say yes to His invitation. Understanding all that I've said about trust in Christ, meaning you're giving Him your life. As my good friend puts it, give your life to Jesus today. That's just a fine way to think of it. You're not going to give your life to Him if you don't believe in Him. If you really believe in Him and who He is, you're going to give your life to Him. Make it sure today. The Bible even says, make your salvation sure. Do it. Tell God. Lord, thank you that you want to save us, that you want to give us mercy, that you came and died on a cross to make a way for us to be saved. We take it for granted too much. Your love, our chosenness, the fact that we've made us a, a priesthood, people for your own possession. We are so blessed. Your, your love is beyond, we can't even fathom it. We were in the darkness. As Connor mentioned earlier, you loved us while we were still sinners. And you reached out and you brought us into your kingdom. And Lord, for believers today, I, I know I, I got a little bit. I went over to an edge. I think we needed that edge. We are sojourners and exiles. This world is not our home. This world is not a place that we should love and want to stay. Not this world. But we look forward to your new kingdom coming. And we want to see as many of our friends and neighbors be a part of it as possible. So help us with our testimonies. Help us learn to share and speak the right things. Not to make it too easy. Help people know that there's something real here. It's not just some magic words. God, revive your church so that the world can be awakened. That's what we need. We need a revived church to see a spiritual awakening. And let us start in the Northwest, if I can be so selfish. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.